0: who has already publicly declared his faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're wondering why. Well, in this passage, we find some reasons why Jesus really is worth following. And the title of this sermon, he is above all earthly powers. So let's read Acts 19 uh, from verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, this is where Paul had just evangelized, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So, Paul asked, Then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Let's now just pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the very clear and powerful and straightforward testimony that we just heard. We thank you, Lord, that even in our contemporary age, we hear stories of those whose lives are radically transformed by the Lord Jesus. And we pray this evening, Lord, as we now would Seek to understand your word, what we have read. That in these pages, we would meet the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. And we ask this now in his name. Amen. Well, for those of you who watched the uh, painful proceedings of the Ryder Cup golf last week, uh, I mean, unless you're American, that is, uh, you may recall a significant event which happened. It actually occurred very on, I think it was even before they they teed off. Uh, The legendary boxer, Muhammad Ali, uh, paid the players a surprise visit. Uh, He suddenly uh, turned up on uh, one of the greens and both the American and European teams got the chance to meet Muhammad Ali. And it was really, for some of them, quite a significant occasion. Indeed, it was all too much for the uh, captain of the European squad, Nick Faldo, who openly wept as he reflected on this incident. What an occasion it was to meet the quote-unquote greatest of all. Even though, in supreme irony, the greatest is now confined to a wheelchair and cannot speak. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening, this evening each and every one of us has the opportunity to meet someone who is, in fact, the greatest. Someone whose power and prestige never fades. Someone who always was, and certainly is, and always will be, the greatest. That someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. That someone is the same Jesus into whom Andrew has believed and into whose name he will be baptized this evening. And tonight, each one of us has the opportunity to meet this Jesus. And I want us to see in this passage uh, two ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ really is supreme. Here's the two reasons, and you'll need to have your Bible open uh, in front of you, right? Why Jesus is simply the best. Number one, a superior knowledge. There is, in Jesus, a superior knowledge. Now, we live, don't we, in the age of knowledge. Uh, we live in a time where knowledge really is one of the most popular pursuits, maybe alongside pleasure. Knowledge is a big deal. I mean, the internet has put more information onto our computer screens than we could possibly read in a lifetime. And we live also in the age of Wikipedia. In a time where not only do people want to receive knowledge, they want to impart knowledge. And we live in the university age. In a time where more people are studying more different kinds of subjects for more time than ever before, I was reading in the Metro uh, newspaper this week an interview with the actor Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer is, if you don't know, uh, an actor in the series *Frasier*, and he actually had a heart attack last year. And so the interviewer was asking him, "Well, in light of this renewed focus in your life, uh, what is it that you're hoping to do for the remainder?" And he said, well, there are two things that I want to do. Number one, I want to buy a yacht and I want to sail around the world and see the world. And number two, he said, I want to pursue knowledge. He wants to pursue knowledge. You see, this is the the cool thing of our day. And yet here is an ironic thing. Here is an amazing thing to recognize if you are a Christian this evening. That we, in fact, have by God's grace... The highest, the finest, the greatest knowledge and information that exists, that has come to man. It is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no information on a par with this. And this is why Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. He comes to Ephesus so that people might discover and learn this vital superior knowledge. This city full of lecture halls. This city full of philosophy and debate. This city full of intellectual rigor. Even to here, Paul comes. And he says, while there are, in fact, many things that you know, the essential facts are missing. Much of what you know is trivia. Here is truth of the highest order. And you see, this is essentially what Paul is doing throughout the first ten verses of our chapter. He is educating people about the knowledge of Jesus. Notice with me the first group that Paul uh, informs and whose knowledge he improves. First of all, the inadequate knowledge of John's disciples. In verses 1 to 7, now these were disciples of uh, John the Baptist, remember him. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus in the Gospels. And here are some of John's disciples, and they are now living far away, many hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. They're in Ephesus now. And they're a little bit of an enigma, these disciples of John. Because we're told in verse 2 that these 12 men were disciples, uh, that they were believers. That's on the one hand. However, we're also told something very intriguing. that, That Paul quickly notices something is missing in terms of their knowledge, in terms of their experience. Paul quizzes them. It must have been a scary thing to have the Apostle Paul Quizzing you about your, you know, theology. And he asked them in verse 2, If they have received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Ouch. Evidently, there wasn't the sign of the Holy Spirit in their life. He asked, did you receive the Spirit? And Paul is on exactly the right track because they respond rather surprisingly. They say, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, what are we to make of this tricky little section? Well, first of all, let me say that presumably, this does not mean that they had never heard about the Holy Spirit. Because they were Jews. They were good Jews. And they would have known their scriptures. And they would have known that in their scriptures, the Old Testament was replete with promises about the Holy Spirit. That one day God would send His Spirit upon the people of of God, This was familiar territory for them. What seems to be the problem, however, is that they have not heard that the Holy Spirit was now available. In other words, they've somehow missed the fact that Pentecost has happened. They don't realize that the historical promise has become a contemporary reality. And so Paul... Uh, by this point, is getting concerned. And he wonders, well, if they've missed the Holy Spirit, then what else have they missed? And so he pauses a little bit further. He asks a follow-up question in verse 3, and he says, then, what baptism baptism did you receive? To which they reply, we received John's baptism. And here Paul realizes, here he really pinpoints, that there is a knowledge deficiency, a serious deficiency. They know about John, they understand about John the Baptist, but they don't know about Jesus. And when you don't know about Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you know. You have a knowledge deficiency. For whatever reason, these guys had left the scene before Jesus came on to the scene. And so they're believers in God and they're disciples of John. And uh, they trust in the Old Testament promises that a Messiah will come. But they do not realize that Jesus is the Messiah. They seem a little bit further back than Apollos in the earlier uh, passage where he has some knowledge about Jesus. It's just not fully adequate. In this sense, these men remind me of the stories you hear uh, occasionally about uh, men who fought in the, say, Second World War. And they've been hiding out in jungles for years, thinking the war is still running. And somebody comes across them and they're hiding up in a tree somewhere and says, you know, you don't realize that the the war ended five years ago. And they just haven't heard the message. Things have changed. Peace is available. Reconciliation is possible. And someone comes along and says, listen, somehow you've missed the news report. In this sense these men are almost the last in a long line of Old Testament type believers. At a last stand of Jewish believers awaiting the Christ, who are unaware of the transition to Jesus Christ. Well, it's at this point, as they come to know about Jesus, that they are then baptized into the name of Jesus, specifically. And it's not surprising that at this point they receive the Holy Spirit. And Paul lays his hands upon them, and they receive the Spirit of God with evident signs to confirm it. And not only does Paul address the knowledge deficiency of this unusual group, but but more briefly notice, there are two other groups whose knowledge deficiency he improves. First of all, Paul's own disciples. Because we see in verse 8 that Paul, uh, from this group, he, he then goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach the gospel to Jews. This is what Paul did. Whenever he went to a city, he took the gospel to the synagogue. And he really gets a fair crack of the whip. Uh, here in Ephesus. For three months, they put up with Paul, proclaiming the gospel and attempting to persuade them about the authenticity of it. But eventually, slipping back into the typical pattern that we find in Acts, opposition rears its ugly head and Paul chooses to leave the synagogue. And yet, Paul does not, at this point, decide to leave the city. It's no time to be doing that. Paul realizes that there are new converts who need teaching, who need grounded further in the truths of the gospel. And so Paul says to himself, well, if there's not a synagogue, I'm going to have to find some other venue to do the teaching. And so it seems that he goes and he rents this lecture hall from this chap nicknamed Tyrannus, Tyrant. Uh, Maybe he was a bit of a tyrant with the rent. Maybe his own pupils, you know, gave him the nickname, who knows. Who knows? Uh, But it it seems that during the middle of the day, when uh, Tyrannus was having his afternoon siesta, uh, that Paul took hold of the hall, and tradition has it, from 11 a.m. in the morning to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. You just imagine then Paul's uh, schedule. Paul got up in the morning, and he went about his business as a tent maker, his day job. And then when most people went for their afternoon sleep... The Apostle Paul went about the painstaking work of preaching the gospel in the baking heat. If Paul taught five hours every day, six days a week for 52 weeks a year, for two years, that's 3,120 hours of lecture. And when you feel it for Paul, never mind his students. It's a reminder to us, of course, just how seriously Paul was committed to teaching the superior knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a Jew who had come to know Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and he was so excited about it, he spent two years teaching about it. And then, there's a sort of ripple effect of this, because there's a third group that through teaching his own disciples, Paul then impacts a much wider and larger group of people. uh, Jews and Greeks in that region. Verse 10. Heard the gospel. All who lived in the province of Asia, which is a very large area. Ephesus was the capital of it. Sizable area. And in hyperbole, probably Luke says, you know, everybody heard this message in the region. Apparently, the eager students of Paul left their lectures, went back to their little towns where they came from, some of them, and began to tell others about Jesus. It wasn't that Paul did all of this himself. Presumably, but his teaching of Jesus was infectious. It's probably during this time that the seven churches that you read about in Revelation, with Ephesus heading the list, are established. And so this is a result from Paul's consistent and passionate teaching of what he believes to be the highest knowledge available to human beings. And as we we, we draw this point to a close and to an application, uh, let me just tease out the the very obvious and, and specific implication of this for our hearts. Christian brother and sister, can I remind you, need I remind you, that we have the best message in the world to share? There is no message like the gospel, it is the most stunning message conceivable. I mean, I just challenge you this evening to try and conceive of a more remarkable story than the gospel. I think it might have been C.S. Lewis. I I couldn't check this. Uh, But someone of his caliber once said, If the gospel is not true, it should be. It's such an amazing message. It's such a superior story. It's such a remarkable piece of knowledge. But here's something even better. It's true. It's true. And if you are a Christian, I shouldn't need to tell you uh, this. And yet, I remind myself of this. Because how often, you know, we flick the news browsers on the internet, we, you know, watch all the headlines, we read the newspapers, and somehow we don't get around to studying the news and to sharing the news. But, you know, non-Christian friend, can I also address you for just a few moments? And can I ask you this question? Are you pursuing... Other branches of knowledge, which are far less significant than this superior branch of knowledge, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be the case that you have a wonderful understanding of you know, various uh, specific areas that would just bamboozle me if you told me afterwards. You know, it might be that you have a, uh, a wonderful understanding of, of politics. You know, in all the different governments across the world. It might be music, and you you understand all sorts of things about the history of music. It, it, It might be modern, you know, history. It might be sport. Some of you can think of your mastermind subjects. And yet, you know so much of this stuff. And yet you have not received, you have not grasped, a by far more important message in the gospel. And I say to you this evening, dear friend, give yourself to this study. Give yourself, give the rest of your life to looking into this and seeing if it is true. George Whitfield was a great Christian preacher, and he was also, as it happened, a friend of a former American president, Benjamin Franklin. And on one occasion, Whitfield wrote a letter to his friend, Benjamin Franklin. And this is what he said. As you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity, Franklin's favorite subject on the site, I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of new birth, how you become a Christian. It is a most important, interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for all your pains. Dear friend, wherever you are coming from this evening, I recommend this study to you. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is a superior knowledge. But this is not the only evidence of Jesus' supremacy. Here is also a second aspect of Jesus' preeminence. Notice this with me. There is a superior power in Jesus. Not just a superior knowledge, but also a superior power. And when I say power, I don't mean so much power in a physical uh, sense or manifestation. You know, that's in the news this week. Will we have enough power to keep us through the winter so that everybody has enough all of the period? But this is not really the power that we see manifest so much in Ephesians 19. No, it is spiritual power which is the topic of discussion. And this was something especially relevant in Ephesus. A city where there was much in the way of malevolent spiritual power. One commentator describes Ephesus as the dark castle of Asia Minor. He describes it as a waterhole where every clear, voyant witch and con man came. Ephesus was thus... Quite a contradiction in terms. It was a powerful and prestigious city, on the one hand. But it was also a hive of spiritualism and dark things. Why, you might even say it wasn't too much distant from Edinburgh today. I mean, we have a great city, don't we, that we live in and we love much about this city. And yet, it's not too hard, is it, to find some dark corners. In fact, some of the dark corners aren't really in the corner at all. They're actually right out in public display. I was walking uh, down the Royal Mile just a couple of weeks ago and there was a lady sitting at a street table and there was a man with various pieces on the table and he was reading her fortune and telling her future for cash. And there's also the pagan shops with all the intricate dainties, you know, the amulets and charms and spell books. I mean, there's a whole tourist industry that kind of leans almost on this whole spooky and supernatural stuff. And by the way, not all of it is mumbo-jumbo. I think this is sometimes what we, uh, what we think. No doubt some of it is pure charade. No doubt much of it is money-making. But it's not all nonsense. There is, in fact, often power at work. I'll never forget, uh, as a young lad, my dad, my father, who didn't often speak much about spiritual things at all, so when he spoke, you know, it was something important. And uh, I don't know what brought this to attention, but he he said, Colin, you know all this talk about demons and uh, the devil and Ouija boards and all that sort of stuff? He said, a lot of it's real. Don't touch it. You know, when your friends ask you to do it, don't play with it. A lot of this stuff is real. It's dark and it's real. And this was certainly the case in the city of Ephesus. And yet maybe there's another little part to that lesson that we need to learn. And it is this, that Jesus has altogether greater power than the powers of darkness. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And this really was the the thing that we learn here in Ephesus. The irrepressible power of Jesus over the powers of darkness. That's really what this is, you know, you're maybe wondering as we're reading, what is all this healings and exorcisms about? This is what it's about. And notice a couple of things about these spectacular healings. First of all, Paul is the mediator of these miracles. So often it is the apostles who are engaged in the miracles. And in part, these authenticated the apostles' apostleship. And so here is Paul standing as a bona fide apostle. He can do miracles by God's grace. Secondly, we note that Paul's clothing is sometimes used as a conduit in these miracles. Now, if you know your Bible at all, this is pretty rare, isn't it? I think on one occasion... This happened in Jesus' ministry. A woman touched his robe. And in this case, it's Paul's uh, handkerchiefs. It was probably a sweatband that he put around his head when he was tent making. And uh, and an apron which he wrapped around his waist when he was working. These items of Paul uh, were sometimes taken by other people to the sick, to those who were spiritually oppressed. And, you know, Paul was so hot with power sort of thing that the people were healed through the items. And yet, verse 11 is a very important reminder that God is the ultimate source of all of this. It's not the cloth, you know, it's not the handkerchief, it's not even the Apostle Paul. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And notice that too, that even here in Acts it recognizes this. These were extraordinary miracles that God did through Paul. Even by the standard of the New Testament, uh, these weren't of your typical order. why? Why? Why is that the case? Why does God go to such extremes and lengths? Well, isn't the answer obvious? Ephesus was such a stronghold of dark spiritual power that the power of Jesus had to be manifest as a greater power. And so the power of Christ is especially evidenced. And this is over and against uh, the inferior power. ...of the sorcerers in Ephesus, in uh, verse 13 and following, these professional exorcists. Uh, These were Jewish sorcerers, we're told, uh, who made a living driving out evil spirits. And what happened uh, in these exorcisms, what tended to happen was that people would use, they would invoke the name of a spirit in order to cast out a demon... So you would invoke the name of a, of a really powerful spirit to drive out a, a weaker spirit, so to speak. So this is what these guys did. And, and Jewish sorcerers were thought to be especially powerful. Because the common thought was that they knew the secret name of Israel's God. The unpronounceable name. And so, wow, they had a real you know, power resource in their pocket. And so these guys are doing their business. But along comes This nobody, this uh, tent maker, Paul. And suddenly he starts doing much greater miracles than they can do. And so they think, well, if you can't beat him, join him. And so they think, well, if Paul is using this, you know, spirit Jesus, uh, this powerful name, why don't we use the name Jesus? And we'll see what happens. And so they start going around and they start trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Not as believers in Jesus, but as those who are trying to manipulate Who they just think is a spirit, a powerful spirit called Jesus. And they're in for a little bit of a shock. Because one day when they're trying to to cast out a demon in Jesus' name, this is in verse 15, the demon suddenly pulls them up. And you can just imagine it. It's almost funny if it wasn't so serious. You know, the demon's eyes rolling to the back of his head. And he he says, you know, Jesus, I know, You know, he's cast out a lot of demons in me. And Paul, I know, because he's always casting out my friends. Uh, But but who do you think you are? Never seen you around here using Jesus' name. And not only did he fail to exercise this man of the spirit, but the demon-possessed man then turns on them and uh, beats them up pretty dramatically. Embarrassingly failing in their attempt to use Jesus' name. And the point, of course, to underline is this. Jesus is a superior power than your average spirit. Even the most powerful spirit. Jesus isn't just some god or demigod. Jesus isn't just some spiritual force or commodity that you can tap into like yoga. Jesus is not able to be manipulated. For your spiritual gain. He is greater than any other power. His power is available. But only to those who trust in him. And for his glory. Now the result of this power uh, encounter is unsurprising in Ephesus. First of all, we read that fear spread throughout the whole region. The whole of Ephesus. People learn uh, that Jesus is not to be trifled with. You better not mess with this Jesus. And so they revere his name. Honor comes to Jesus' name. And not only among the pagans, this is really quite stunning, this next fact, there is further repentance among believers too. People who have already put their faith in Jesus uh, see this miraculous uh, event and they say, well, actually, we've got a few spell books in the cupboard. And so they bring these uh, spell books out and uh, I won't go into all the history of this, but these were exceptionally expensive. These books, incantations and spells, and they publicly burned them before anyone who will watch. And we're told that the value of these was 50,000 drachmas. That's equivalent to 50,000 days' wages. Because they knew Jesus wasn't to be trifled with. And they knew that, therefore, they had to give up the old power bases in their life. They had to bring them out of the closet and burn them. And this is surely a reminder to us as we come uh, to conclude this evening. This is surely a reminder to us of a couple of things. Number one, that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, isn't the whole story. It is true that Jesus is loving, he is gracious, he is merciful, and he is compassionate. But he is also righteous and powerful and just and mighty. He's stronger than any foe. And though though evil may be great, and often it is powerful, he has a greater power than they. But here's the second thing. One, Jesus is a superior power. But here's the second thing. That being the case, we really have no excuse not to bring the vestiges of our sinful past out of the closet. Because Jesus has the power to deal with them. It's really interesting, isn't it, as we come uh, this evening. We also come to a public declaration of repentance. It's not to the burning of scrolls, which is something specific for those involved in the occult and repenting of that. But baptism, something which is generally relevant to anyone who would repent of their sins and follow Jesus. Amongst other things, baptism is a way of saying, I'm leaving behind my old ways. I'm leaving behind my old sins. I'm leaving behind my old haunts. And I'm beginning a new life with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these guys did. Now, it's not, you know, pretending. It's not saying that we're going to live a life of perfection. Perfection. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. It's because we're not perfect, it's because we sin that Jesus came into the world. It's because we sinned, Jesus went to the cross and he died there for our sins and in our place. And yet, while we must not live and we cannot live a perfect life, we must live a penitent life, this side of glory. A life marked by repentance. A life marked by us giving up the old power bases in our life. Whether it's the occult or whether it's other things. Maybe you're not a Christian. And uh, your problem this evening is actually not with the content of the Christian message. Your problem this evening is with the things that you would need to give up to follow Jesus. And you know what they are. And they're powerful things in your life. They're things that you need or you think you need. It may be that you are a Christian, like these guys. And there are skeletons in the closet that need to come out. Really following Jesus is going to involve giving up that addiction. It's going to involve giving up that lust. It's going to involve giving up that greed. Things that you have not yet surrendered. And this baptism is a challenge for you to bring these things out And as Andrew is repenting for you to bring these to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what that would be in your life. What would the power base be? Whatever it is, you must give it up and you can give it up. You know, some people don't come to Jesus because they think, well, I could never live the Christian life. That is true. You don't have power to live the Christian life. But the Holy Spirit empowers you to live the Christian life. Do you think that the spirit who has the power to heal sickness and to exercise demons doesn't have the power to help you break a habit? He has the power. Whatever power is holding its grip on you this evening, I would call you tonight to trust in Jesus and to relinquish it. His cross is sufficient to pay the price for it. This is why Andrew is following Jesus tonight. This is why he's not following any other God. And I trust this evening that whoever you are, you will be called to come and meet this Jesus and to radically repent and to give your whole trust to him. Let us pray together. Father, this evening we thank you for a very dramatic passage. And Lord, it's a good thing that it's dramatic, because conversion is dramatic. There's not gradual when your spirit is radically at work. And so Lord, as we praise you for Andrew's testimony, Lord, our desire would be that that would be just the tip of the iceberg this evening. Help us, Lord, as we come to this baptism, not only to see it as a moment of vital importance for Andrew, though it is, but also of importance to each one of us. Lord, help us to come and to bring those things out of the dark to you. And we pray that Jesus, in all of his power and his mercy and his love, would meet with us. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing together as uh, we get prepared for the baptisms. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things. Let's exalt the Lord Jesus as we sing this together, as a response to him and what we have heard.